think. So wait, what, or... do, what do you want to do th- with this? You want to have like a separate section on this and upload it, or you want to add it to the existing videos, or what, what do you want to do with this? So, well, this will be the master debaters corner, just missing your insights. So this will be a standalone episode whenever we can't have you for catch up. Damn, um, I feel I feel honored. But okay, well, let's go. Yeah, Hit me with the questions. Let's go. Well, I mean, well, I'm just going to go topic by topic. I didn't prepare. I just have the topics we talked about. And let me just get your insights. You know, we'll just keep it a loose, casual conversation. Keep it easy. Perfect. Uh, breeze through it. Oh, oh my God. Look at this guy. There we go. It's a little bit muddy, yeah? Well, so, are you just using your computer um, camera? Yes. That's yes, fine. I have a MacBook, so my camera has significantly improved now. Uh, oh, wow. Is that a company uh, laptop? That's it's right. The one that you don't have a job <laughs> with? You know, the funny <laughs> thing was, I spent the last four months not using it. And then this week, we were meeting face-to-face. And it's against company policy to be using your personal laptop. So, oh, wow. so I had to activate the Mac while ah. in these meetings. And oh, that's hilarious. I was actually working on shit. And <laughs> And it was like downloading Mac OS Monterey three hours. I was like, fuck, how do I screen Jesus. Oh, man. That sounds like you're very deep into the, the fintech business now, huh? Yeah, it's good. It's good. I mean, the balance is great, man. But but the balance was great when I was in LATAM. Now that I'm here in London, I just realized like... Mm-mm, they tricked you, dude. That's, that's how it works. No, but I'll I'll move back to that time zone, dude. Like that time zone was great. Twenty hours a week, you know, and then uh like I'm staying in London now in a place that's the size of Harry Potter. Shoebox. Like yeah, it's yeah. a shoebox. And it's double the price of my two bedroom apartment in Mexico City. Yeah, London, Hong Kong, you live like a modified student unless you're making over three, four hundred K a year, right? So yeah. that's how it is. Yeah. I, I don't think it ever makes sense to live here, yo. Can I head back to Mexico City? It does if you live a very simple life or if you have a lot of money, right? It's either or. <laughs> yeah, but even if you have a lot of money, like, it feels, like, wasteful. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, there's... I don't know. Well, it's literally a finance, financial city, so you know how those people are, so... Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Otherwise, you're, you're doing well. You're looking healthy in London, making me a little fair, or is it just the light? It's the lighting. Actually... I, sh- I should face the light, but this place is positioned in a really shitty way. Let's see if I can do this. I'm not wearing pants, though, no. so we gotta we gotta position this in such a way that you don't see my underwear. Especially, I'm pretty sure we could we could work that out. <laughs> I don't, that's like we only see it if you really want us to see it, Andrew. So that's on you. <laughs> hey, <laughs> it's to get your viewership up, yo. Yeah. So, so is it true? Are you coming back to KL? Is this the, for real? Or the rumors, the rumors are true. London, London was a perfect stopover. So, like, basically, I knew I had to come back for Q1 um, yeah. to London. And since like they're paying for my flights, it just makes sense to just use this. Yeah, might as well. Yeah, you cut more costs. Well. So, like, they'll yeah. they'll cover my Mexico, London, and then now London to Malaysia. So, free trip back home. Yeah. So yeah. what what exactly are you doing? Are you still doing expansion for them? Growth? What is it? Um, so I explained to you, right? I, I run a team called Explore. And Explore is basically like we have a weekly process where I work with the founders to come up with the highest constraints problems. Like So basically every week we define what is the biggest constraint the business has. And then um, 
we split it up. It's, just, it's like, and then we use a methodology that's very similar to Agile. So the constraint gets broken down into smaller problems. The smaller problems then get broken down into teams. The teams figure out how to fix that problem. And then I just I, make I think, the, yeah. I think you just merged your two previous careers together into a current job, essentially. <laughs> I see what you did there. Very that's good. Though. That, uh, to be fair, though, you know, like that's actually valuable. Like, you know, when you try to hire people to do that, like actual thinking, it's, you know, at scale, you know, you're just so tunnel vision. You need someone like who's like outside to help you do that. So I could see that. It makes sense. I am really, I, I definitely feel like I'm adding value. And the cool thing is like, you know, I started with a team of, of four and now like we've built a system where like 20 people in the organization get into this meeting once a week. Nice. And, Very and nice. we have like multiple constraints, right? So like, you know, like, like so they have a set of OKRs that are core OKRs and then we have like exploratory OKRs where we don't know the answer. No. And so these OKRs start with know how to do X, like know how to launch affiliate marketing, know how to launch the US, know how to launch uh, instant revenues as a conversion tactic for uh, lending, yeah. right? And then like it's three people working together in these sub-projects and then they report weekly on it and we come up with new constraints. So it's very like, it's it's pretty it's an organic way to just keep like uh, motion and innovation it, happening. It almost it almost sounds like a some sort of form of a growth team specifically. It's exactly right? that. it's it's growth no. meets strategy meets uh, no. product in like a very hacky way of doing it using Kanban, moving cards down. You know, yeah. like basically, I, I'm working with a CPO who's coaching me on like product. Um, all these different product techniques and then I'm merging the stuff he's teaching me with what I know from BCG using like hypothesis validation and experimentation and then like reading a ton of books about what's the minimum experiment you need to run to prove disprove something right Uh, so like so basically like when there's a problem and we don't know the answer how can you set an experiment within three or four days that's the minimum viable experiment you need to test to prove or invalidate the first point you need to prove yeah. Can you give us context about what the nature of the company is? How big are the people? Like, what stage are you at? Because this only kind of makes sense for typically really big companies who have a lot of volume where, you know, data points are large enough to be meaningful in sample size, right? Otherwise, you know, I can't even imagine like an early stage startup doing this. And unless you do like maybe one or two experiments, you know, no, in the first too. year. No. Or... So, so, for example, like... Um... So what they have, the unit economics are working really well for them, um, but the product is heavily commoditized and a lot of like larger players have the potential to launch this product almost immediately, right? So if you have infra, you can add lending and figure out the credit scoring model relatively quickly between like six to nine months. And they know that. So they know what this is about- business doing. So they, they do, do revenue-based financing. That's their main product. Okay, revenue-based right? finance. Okay. But, but, um, they know that they can launch alternate lending products and they know that they can provide. Um, so, so they found themselves in a few interesting scenarios in scenario. Number one is they have a product. The unit economics are fantastic. Scenario number two is they somehow seem to be lending mostly to digital e-commerce businesses, primarily instead of SaaS businesses as which most RBF tends to do SaaS. Right. Well, it's tech. I mean, it's technically less risky, right? But, I, I, I mean, I think that's probably what people have found out, but I, I feel e-commerce um, with, you know, certain margins and certain categories could do really well, right? Like the cash flow should be very predictable and you should know when it's coming back. Correct. 
Correct. But the problem is like if somebody enters that market and undercuts price, you'll, you'll just get fucked, right? That's true. Yeah, that's, so, true. that's true. So for them, they, they're just like panicking about that and they're like, okay, we need to build either a moat around infrastructure or a moat around like alternate lending products or a moat around like new geographies and like uh, speed of expansion. And wow. Okay. Hey, I got I like... Why not just focus on what was working or is it not defensible? Not defensible. Okay, that's okay. That's fair. So, but I me, mean, like, what what you're what we've been seeing, and we're still actually seeing this. I'm seeing that like the the headlines, like people are raising like seven hundred, eight hundred million dollars still. Like people are, and, and I think they're probably in the same position that your company's probably at. Like, you know, so it sounds like they're trying to focus on a quote unquote healthier approach, at least a more a more sustainable approach, right? So, so at least it's like less they've got like two major investors that are very like, fuck growth, keep your book healthy, which is like very weird. It's very anti-Silicon Valley. Is, is it like a London thing or what, what's going I, on? No, it's it's like, it's old school lending. Like, like ah. so, so, okay, the way it works, actually, the business and the, the insight that was like most interesting for me is they, they actually don't have any loans on their books. What happens is, it's like, it's like, um, it's like, it's like lending. Uh, it, what, imagine this, right? They, what they do is they borrow an apartment block and then they have yeah. be managed the, the rooms. Oh, okay. So it's like a, a layer. But that means they're using someone else's... Correct. Business. Correct. And those guys that lend them the apartment block are like, fuck you, you ain't growing this high. You need to make sure the, the rooms like oh, don't get rock so stars. But it's, also, it's like a form of platform risk too, though. No, like the, how, are they, how are their interests aligned? They have what they invested equity or what is it? No, they give them debt. They give them debt at a certain cost of capital. The cost of capital okay, has I certain see. requirements oh, on it. And then you need to hold it. Yeah. yeah. So the truth is you can run this business with very little equity. You don't need to fundraise. It's fucking amazing, man. The unit economics. It makes sense in London because I feel like bulge bracket banks have a lot of underutilized infra and assets that they're it's trying to monetize. It's not just bulge bracket. Like the guys who lend to them, I, I'm just learning about all this in the last two months, right? Are people that have like hundreds of billions of just pure debt. They don't even have Institutional equity. debt. It's institutional debt lenders, correct. And then for them, these yeah. guys are like, oh, what, you want 100 million? Yeah, here you go. Right. That's so fascinating. They don't even, yeah. yeah. So what, you could run this so, business without raising equity. No. Well, I saw recently an article for 2022 to date, largest asset flows to asset classes. Uh, largest, obviously, still is hedge funds. It's like 20 something percent, close to 30 percent. And then half of that was like um, VC and half of, the, and a, and a, which is a, like roughly. Uh, half of a quarter, right? The other half of a quarter was uh, private equity. So combined, it's all like half, like the half of the pie was just private equity. But then yeah. a small slice was only debt, you know, funds raising for debt, which means there must be a big opportunity for tech. The re no, today. the recycling is very high. Yeah, they just like keep it flowing, and like most people don't mm. want to. I, I don't know. It might it may grow now that the recession is coming, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, if interest rates peak up, right? You know, then risk the off. yield curve is reversing, bro. It's inevitable. We've never had a false positive. This could be the first, but yeah, I, I well, it, could, it delays and then maybe flattens out a bit, and then. But I mean, yeah, once it inverts, that's gas price going usually... up. You got a war in Ukraine. You know, China's okay. bring stuff to everybody. Perfect segue. So we got to get your <laughs> viewpoint on this. Like, did, I don't know if you were to follow the previous episodes. If not, I could briefly update you. But the, the first topic we did talk about was was Russia, Ukraine. So I mean, we're we're well into it. This is already at the month mark. And yeah. uh, based off the headlines, it seems like every, both sides are really strained. Like the headlines are the 
there's no more of this like you know one-sided narrative propaganda. Zelensky is is really feeling pressured with the amount of brutality and destruction coming down from Russia. Russia seems like their resources are really getting you know pushed the limit too. So I think uh, you know the, it seems like it's almost coming to a natural resolution. Um, but what do you think? What are there any different insights that you have or conversations? Yeah, so I mean, okay, let, let's just first gather that. I think generally, what the media likes to do in a lot of these types of instances is they take the side of the side, the the underdog, right? We saw that in Crimea. We saw that in, honestly, with every major like battlefront in the last like 10, 20 years, yeah. the media always tries to paint a picture that the the underdog is winning. The truth mm-hmm. is. Russia has a much stronger military might and the complexities when you come, like, sure, Ukraine has the support of NATO in terms of intelligence, in terms of arms, in terms of, like, you know, the, the military aid that they're supporting them with. But it's it's a very one-sided war, right? And Russia hasn't put their full might behind this yet. It's 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 literally like, a, it's a, supposed to be fast and quick. That's where they're, they're getting screwed over. But one yeah. thing is very clear, though. Putin does not care about international sanctions or international perspectives on mm-hmm. Russia at the moment. Um, there's no like political hearts and minds war at the moment uh, yeah. coming from Russia at all, which means like, you know, it's a very different kind of war. Like he's willing to do anything. They, they, I don't know if the rumors are right. They're using white phosphorus last week, right? And like mm-hmm. white phosphorus is, you know, it's a banned chemical to be used in yeah. any sort of war circumstance, but yeah. they're using it in Ukraine. Um, and... If they are using it in Ukraine and with no retaliation, it means like Russia really, really doesn't care about any sort of action from the EU. Um, what I think is going to happen is there will be, I, it, it may be prolonged. I, I, you know, I won't put my money on it, but it's hard to see Russia backing out of this, right? Yeah. It's hard to see Russia backing out of this. They're going to go through with it and try to push through. Um, um, and it's working in their favor as well, right? Because they're still selling gas and they're still selling oil. And yeah. they're selling gas and oil to China, to India, to Germany still. Um, and gas prices are going up, which means like this war yeah. is making them money, right? Yeah, the correct. sanctions are not affecting them. Like, yes, they are in the short term. The ruble's dropping. Oligarchs can't get their money out. Some oligarch can't pay for his, you know, Charles Bar bill in London, which is a terrible yeah. thing, you know. I'm pretty sure he has to deal with that pain. Like, can you imagine Putin dealing with 30 people calling him every day, going like, "Hey, bro, yeah. please, can you unlock this stuff so that my kids yeah. don't call me every day?" Yeah. Um, but you know, other than that, I think, I think we're we're seeing now a very belligerent Russia. And the crazy stuff is, it's also going to increase belligerency in other parts of the world, right? I think China's going to realize what they can do with Taiwan right now, unhindered. Well. That's interesting. You this this narrative almost I feel is what would it, like what a few people on the circuit were talking about maybe one or two weeks ago, right? And what's what's maybe maybe give me your insights on what what about about to say. But um, the view now is that at least from what I I mean, I, mine's a few days you know a little bit older too because I was researching this midweek. But uh, it's almost like a stalemate, right? Because What's happening is Russia. Well, hold on. Let me, let me get this straight. Hold on. So, uh, so it's very convoluted. This this this, this topic. Um, so what you're saying is that yeah. I, so I used to think the same thing that Russia probably had all the resources. Uh, but what what one clear narrative is that Russia really didn't have it organized together 
and I think a lot of experts, not like propaganda, actual experts who actually study war are confirming this, right? So that, that's the first part. Secondly, even if they are able to physically take over, you know, Kiev and hold, you know, they, they're able to dominate uh, every single battle, they're not going to be able to hold it long term. So it's a strategic loss in the long term, right? So what happens is uh, Ukraine is primarily a very low dense population city, and they haven't really successfully taken any major cities yet, right? And even if they are able to take these cities, what happens is, this, you know, you, you essentially make terrorists who will move to the mountains and the forests to fight guerrilla warfare long term, right? It just becomes a protracted war that probably Russia really cannot keep up with. Um, the one thing I really don't really agree with the narrative there was they were saying that Russia had no plan about what to do once they take over the capital. But I, I think, you know, they just need to declare, uh, you know, mil they, they demilitarize Ukraine, which is a very loose definition, right? They can claim that, you know, they got rid of the Nazis once they take over the city and they just need a promise of not to join NATO, right? And that's what Moldova has. And then basically the Moldova says they'll never join NATO, but they're allowed to economically integrate with the West, right? So I think there there is room for a clear win for Russia, right? But they, I don't think they could hold it long term if they want to keep fighting. That, I mean, that's not going to really work because the pe the people don't really want this, you know. So, so, so not an expert know. here, but like you know, in general, there have been pro-Russian movements um, within Ukraine itself, right? So if you, if you think about yeah, what happened sure. after Euromaidan in twenty fourteen, right? Um, after the protests, so so there was a pro-Russian uh, president in power in Ukraine who you know followed Russia's stance and, and declined Ukraine's membership into the EU. And then you had the Euromaidan revolution where people were like, no, we actually do want to be a part of the EU yeah. and threw him out of power, right? Um, but if you look at the referendums, like statistics, it wasn't like overwhelming support. Yes, there was a large amount of support. Yeah. But if you look at the split between rural, urban, there's actually a yeah, big correct. amount of people that actually could, like feel like they should be part of Russia. Um, now, that sentiment would have changed tremendously, especially with the war of heart and oh, spine. Yeah, sure. And yeah. like, you know, yeah. people knowing at least like one person who's been severely injured or who has lost their home or is having to move to a new country. And like, you know, the yeah. feeling of being in war is going to change your perspective. For sure. So the question is, can they still have that support from that grassroots population post, mm, post the war, right? Um, arguably, no, but you have to think in longer terms, right? These countries like Russia and China think not in the terms of like one or two term elections, no. in terms of 15, 20 years, right? And like, and ultimately it's about economic integration. It's about other kinds of things that you do to benefit that country, right? If you think about yeah. the progress that Germany and Russia, so Germany and Japan made post-World War II, like how many yeah. Japanese have anti-American sentiments today? And yet yeah. how many cities did America wipe out with atomic bombs? Right. Well, the, the that generation is completely gone, right? So they. Yes, yeah, so, but it, I, it's like yeah, but it took. I mean, to be honest, one generation later, everyone was wearing jeans and watching television with American commercials, right? So it it doesn't take too long to shift mental perspectives. I mean, in the true. in the grander no. scheme of things. So so I I I do think in the short term managing Ukraine will be hard, but putting a puppet government in place, making sure elections don't happen making sure you restrict freedoms in such a way that it favors the political agenda that you have mm. in place. These are things that you can do very gradually. Uh, like think about Israel-Palestine, right? It's mm. hard to be Palestinian and have Palestinian views because your kids won't be able to go to school. You can't mm. get a house. You know, your, your, your son can't get a job. 
And like these things you need to do to live, right? Yeah. And like at some point you're like, screw this. I want my kids to go to a, to school. And so if I want them to go to school, I need them to do X. And now you have Palestinians sending their kids for national service to the IDF, yeah. you know? Um, so it, it it's it, like economic incentives will make people align. Most people aren't very politically motivated. They actually are thinking about how do I get bread on the table and make sure my children yeah. have a better life. And if you make those incentives align, you can get control of a population. It's not going to be easy and it's not yeah. going to be pleasant, but it's possible it has been done before by countless other countries that are smaller than Russia. Well, okay. So essentially, if I'm to summarize uh, concisely, you believe that this is going to end up in a Russia win with control and eventually it will just pass, right? I mean, predictions, uh, predictions, yeah. predictions, right? Like any of us can yeah. predict anything right now. As a, yeah. as a betting person, I would say, and I know it's terrible to say that because I, like, my heart, like, there's, there's people who are, you know, suffering from this war, right? But yeah. I think there's very strong indications that Russia has what it takes to win this war. Um, and I think they have like strong indications to be able to control the territory post the war. Yeah. Um, that being said, anything can happen. Um, but I do think like the odds of the opposite happening are lower yeah. than what I'm predicting. Yeah. I mean, that's very interesting because that's very anti sentiment of what is being said in the headlines in the past few days. Right. So I think it's a very interesting perspective, but you know, if you, if you think that is true, what are the implications with the West? And because at the same time, this cannot drag in longer because this really antagonizes people like, you know, countries like Poland and other border countries. They're like thinking like, well, you know, if we're next, what are we going to do? And it's it has forced a lot of change, you know, in, in the, the Western hemisphere of, of Europe where everyone's ramping up now arms. And and then, you know, this it's like they really can't afford. So it has to be much quicker, I think. But at the yeah. same time, then, you know, if Russia does end up physically taking over and let's just say for argument's sake, they are able to get a public government and suppress what is the what is that what are the implications what does that mean for the west then so i think nato has actually become stronger as a result of this right yeah um if you think about so actually you know one thing that people don't recognize that one of the reasons why ukraine is doing so well is because they were trained yeah. by nato and they use like they aren't they, they they're using military equipment supplied by nato um the only reason like you know, one of the many reasons that they haven't been able to join also is because they don't follow like NATO standards in terms of, so I don't know if you know this, but to join NATO, the arms from one country has to be utilizable by another country, right? Mm -hmm. Which means like the artillery shells you have, have to be able to fit yeah. with the artillery equipment. You can't use equipment from outside, right? Mm. And so like uh, Ukraine doesn't follow a lot of those standards at the moment. But what you can see right now is that in terms of training, that in terms of like the equipment that they're getting and being able to use, like, they're doing pretty well with that stuff, right? Which yeah. makes which makes it seem that the other countries who are already part of NATO, like Poland, are, would be ridiculously better prepared. And and just for a sense of scale to like our listeners who are mostly in Asia, right? Poland's GDP per capita is very similar to Malaysia. Like in terms of like their, their total development, where they are as a country, Eastern Europe resembles Southeast Asia a lot, right? In terms of population, yeah. in terms of like That's culture, true. a growing middle class. And so these are countries that are like the Thailands and Malaysias of Europe. And they are armed to the teeth with training militarist, militaristically in a way that we don't even understand in Asia, right? Yeah. Now, what's going to happen, my predictions are the countries who were refraining from joining NATO in the past 
may potentially join them. You know, there's there's talks of, of of Finland approaching uh, yes, NATO right now and possibly joining. Um, could they follow through? I don't know. There's still a very strong pacifist movement within Finland that would reject this, and also it's not a very big, big country, but one of the closest neighbors to to Russia, right? Finland yeah, joining right. Uh, Russia, and and in the same way, there's this narrative of Ukraine being a part of Russia in the past. Like I think Finland also would share very like Russians also have this narrative that Finland was once part of Russia, um, and so that that would be like a big blow to mm. to, to Russia. Um, I think you're going to have the 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 possibility of more missiles being aimed at Russia very high. Um, yeah. You know, um, in fact, like this whole situation like resembles a lot the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? So if you think about yeah. it, when 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 Russia was trying to put missiles in Cuba, the US reacted in the way that they did, oh, yeah. uh, and and yet we now have this narrative that it's okay for the US to do that in Ukraine, which is right next to Russia. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm. I'm not saying that Russia is right in this. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm just saying that the the narratives there's are logic more, to it. There's logic to it. It's not like this is a bad guy who just wants to kill people, which is how the media seems to be playing this. Right. I was on the train yeah. yesterday, the tube, and overhearing conversations between people where, you know, Putin's like Lex Luthor, and he's like <laughs> just you know trying to kill innocent people. That's... And, yeah. yeah, that's just that's the strength of Western propaganda, right? It is. It's powerful, but the truth is, it's, it's like, powerful. man, it, you know, like if you have a fundamental belief that this other country was a part of yours um, historically, and it's a false narrative, but it's a narrative that most of your people believe in. If you have a narrative that, um, as recent as thirty years ago, this uh, country was a part of yours, which is true, they were part of the USSR. If you have a narrative that promises made to a mega country that used to be part of, you know, the USSR, of which yeah. you are the largest national entity, continue to carry through to you. Remember, NATO did promise the USSR that they would not expand eastwards. Now, yeah. obviously, NATO says that was a promise made to USSR. USSR doesn't exist anymore. Russia is does not equal USSR. Russia doesn't believe that. Yeah, right. They believe Russia equals USSR. Not. Correct. Yeah. Now, if you hold these three things to be true, and then you have nuclear arms being placed in the closest possible border to them, you yeah. technically have antagonized the bear, right? You're threatening their way of life, essentially. Well, Putin's version of the way of life, which is, I think a lot of people actually, you know, prescribe to that. They, Correct. They're big supporters of Putin's across Russia. Right? And, so. and I, I truly believe that the, most Russians believe that in Donbass, that there is a, a genocide happening. And they see themselves as defenders of the Russian way of life in the small territories. And um, like, like I, I think they fundamentally believe in these truths. And so it's a question of like one truth versus another and what's the right uh, move. Obviously, what they're doing is terrible, um, but it's not illogical. Yeah. Well, let's 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 also say, just so people don't get the wrong sentiment, is that there are also opposite beliefs of what you just said, right? There are leakages of people in Russia who don't support it, obviously, which is, uh, of course, Western propaganda highly pushes those videos out of, you know, protesters getting arrested and whatnot. But there are people like that. You know, I was watching an, an Asian boss interview on, on the ground in China, which so I, I don't know how they kind of got these interviews done. Like, I don't know if they submitted to the CCP and the CCP approved it just to be safe or maybe they just, you know, uploaded it somewhere else. But they were interviewing people 
in Shanghai on the views of the war. And majority of the people just wanted peace. Of course, there's this one one guy who who basically said what you said, you know, very like a uh, big supporter of Putin. You know, he felt like, uh, you know, they were just defending themselves, this kind of thing. But it, it just shows that there are multiple beliefs in the country. It's just yeah. not one monolithic idea. I 100% agree. And, and the, the, yeah. the, what's interesting is like, Every Russian person I met in Latin America during my travels there would be what we consider to be liberals, right? Yeah. Um, who are against the war, who don't believe that this is the yeah. right thing for their country to do. And yeah. um, there's a strong amount of like like support. But my belief is that they're mostly uh, Western-educated, English-speaking, generally richer, upper-middle class, uh, right? Yeah. And so... Bubble. And, and also, when you're in a country where that kind of thought is going to be heavily restricted super difficult for you to be able to voice that out right it's not like they're treating protesters very well in that country yeah that's true yeah well Um, my my last question for this topic then is do you do you think this leads more towards a cold war 2.0 or this has a a possibility of an accidental world war three man predictions you know you know even though i'm financial i'm trained as a financial engineer and, and run predictive models I can tell you with most predictive models, it's all bullshit. All right? You have some yeah. assumptions, some of those assumptions even like exponentially scale to infinity. So there's no way you build these models out really well, right? Yeah. Um, I am an optimist at heart. Uh, I think countries aren't that stupid. At least I like to believe. Um, so post the 70s, what we saw is a tremendous growth in global trade, which gave us the biggest period of global peace we've had yes we've had tiny uh, skirmishes we've had some large-scale wars in afghanistan and iraq for example but this generally did not affect global trade right i think i think there's a big understanding in a pact you know not very contractual between countries that trade creates prosperity prosperity creates peace and breaking that pact it generates a massive amount of, of breakage, right? And yeah. the countries that are the most likely to lose from this are the countries that have the most to gain from it right now, i.e. the Russia, the Indias, the Chinas of the world, right? Yeah. Um, who are still at that early stage of growth, who are growing their companies yeah, like massive, the, the countries like massive corporations. So yep. my firm belief, obviously I could be wrong, I'm not a military expert, is that prosperity is more important than... Um, then yeah. the, uh, I mean, sovereignty is important, right? So a loss of yeah. sever- sovereignty will cause a risk in prosperity. But right now, sovereignty isn't being threatened yet, right? What's well, it's... Being, uh, yeah. Sorry, go yeah. ahead. Finish that thought. No, what's being threatened is sovereignty in these, like, third-party countries that aren't a part of the... Ma- oh, okay. Right? Yeah. Right? And yeah. so as a result, I don't think... Un- until sovereignty is threatened, prosperity will take precedence. Yeah, it almost seems you you and Jangan are very similar. I mean, by in terms of pragmatism, Jangan thinks more of the, the the power geopolitical dynamics of out, outcomes, and then but yours more is like you know if the powers that be, you know the the the, the incentives, right? You know if you look at incentives, which is a powerful kind of mental model to use here, like what are the people who are, who are in power? What incentives do they have? Of course, would be towards peace, right? Uh, you know, if they break certain social contracts, we we're going to live in a very different world where yeah. Uh, that it's going to be a lot more friction, more inflationary, more, yeah. more, uh, you know, if it's decoupled, right, then it's just not efficient kind of markets and growth going forward. It's but also survival, weird. man. Like if, if you threaten the, the likelihood of your country surviving, you lose your own survival mechanism, right? Like if Putin yeah. loses gas revenues 
and the ruble collapses even further. He basically threatens his own possible legacy. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right. So why, why don't we move on to the next topic? Since, Perfect. Uh, hey, I have like 10 other... minutes, but we did 20 minutes for, for Russia. Can we... No worries. What else do you have on the plate? Lazada spin out. Lazada's IPO? Yeah, they were supposed to IPO, but then they paused it, right? So uh, we also have... We could talk about... Uh, I don't know if you know. I don't know if you know anything about SCB investing Akulaku. You probably know about Akulaku, right? Yeah. Uh, then there's also DD and the Chinese tech stocks, which is very sad, I'm sure, for everyone's portfolio. Uh, go to IPO and then the grab an SEA results. So I don't know what you want to talk about. Man, I feel like all these news is from three weeks ago, and my updates are going to come super late. Are you sure there's value in this master debate session? Even my sure. perspective. Yeah. Well, the Lazada one I think is useful because you you have a unique insider perspective possibly or you know you have people who are still there maybe it's more relevant at least from what we we could say about it man my insider information is a bit too insider okay. so what well, well yeah. what what can you say publicly about the lazada uh you know it's it's you know alibaba is i don't know what they're they're they, they think that there's gonna be a better market timing for this or um, they just they they don't need the capital. Is that what a signaling? Okay, okay. Let's, 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 is that what a signaling? The correct version to say on this. Right, yeah, cap it yeah. to a couple of minutes so that we don't get too long. We cover your different topics. Um, so Lazada um, potential IPO. I think the understanding here is that SE as a stock performs so well during 2020 that the idea yeah. that investors may want to purchase a stock that is outside of China that has some Chinese control, but. Mm. Uh, but um, primarily an exposure outside of China uh, would be very attractive, right? So if you think about Alibaba's position, their stock price has gone below IPO price. Now it's tanking even further and they need a way to save their stock price, right? So you enter the story of um, um, of Naspers, right? How Naspers owns a huge <laughs> yeah. chunk of Tencent stock and basically, oh, Yahoo owning Alibaba stock and then, you know, surviving through it, right? If you're inside Alibaba, you're probably thinking, hey, is there a reverse strategy? Are we at that stage of growth now where we need to pull a Yahoo or pull a Naspers, mm. find another company that is doing really well, sell that story and then make big bucks from it and it can be 30% yeah. of our account and we have some control. And mm. so if you think about it, during the time of the acquisition, there was never really a conversation about an IPO. Possibly in the yeah. future, it was, it was you know, pushed around Very but loose. no one like, suggested it. To happen within a certain type period um but then given their current situation they were like okay what can we do so that we can create some kind of positive equity story um but i think there were so many things that happened together that botched it we won't get into the full details of it but yeah. at the end of the day um you know fundamentals need to be right number one yeah. number two you know that's the kind of story you need to build up over some time i think it leaked before it should have um, um and number three is like, you you really need to get um, some kind of positive spin, not just like on the fundamentals, but on the outside of why this thing is sexy, right? And and they yeah. actually had a couple of really interesting things. So I don't know if you know this, but like Alibaba's also acquired significant stakes in e-commerce players outside of Southeast Asia. So Daraz in Pakistan, oh um, yes, yeah, Paytm in India. They have right. uh, some equity stake in a Turkish company. I forget the name of the company, but like. They could have created this really cool... I mean, if if I was in the driving seat, I would have tried to create some kind of international story around multiple outside mm. of China plays. Um, 
and I think that could have been really sexy, like a unified yeah. country ex-China. Well, that's what Rocket did, right? That's what Rocket did with like Global Fashion Group. Correct. Um, they put all, you know, and they, they bundled it and they kind Correct. of raised the money and it kind of runs itself now, right? So. Exactly. So like the GFG strategy could have worked for Alibaba uh, as opposed to just Lazada because that's, in a way, that's what Shopee did, right? I don't know if you know, but like Shopee's primarily driver of revenues for the first five years of the existence was Taiwan, right? Mm, Which yeah. isn't in Southeast Asia and yet they would Correct. be compared neck to neck against Lazada in those days, right? Correct. Um, yeah. So greater Southeast Asia is what they called it. Like there were so many different ways to do this. I don't think it was fully thought through. And I think it came out too early. And then that kind of like killed chances. I don't think it's completely killed chances. I think it gives them time to at least work on it. Um, Correct. But honestly, they need to invest more in, in getting this thing to grow. Well, that's what Shopee did really well before this whole, you know, war, macro crashes, you know, people talking about inflation. Like they've raised at the right time with the right story. Which I think maybe Lazada was a little bit too slow on. Which, I mean, if you want, you could say a corollary to go to as well. Their timing is really not too good. Um, do, do you have any thoughts on on the go to IPO or? I think, man, with with go to, um, honestly, I'm I'm a bit like confused why they're getting so much of a beating, right? Like. Um, <laughs> Like that's this is what we were looking for last week when you weren't there. We're like, who has the other side of the story? I, I mean, look, how many amazing Indonesian startups can you invest in as a foreign investor right now? Right, there's, okay, there's so not very many. Yeah. Right, if you want and, exposure to Indonesia, yeah, correct. So you've got this massive domestic, uh, you know, GDP growth. Uh, this demographic dividend that people want to invest in and you don't have a lot of stories to invest in. Granted, every big, you know, e-com IPO we've seen, e-com slash logistics IPO over the last year, two years has kind of flopped, right? Bukalapak did terrible. Grab is trading at one quarter of the IPO price, you know. So, but then the question is like, would they have um, like, like, would they have lessons to learn from this, Right. And, yeah. and I, I, I forget who said this, but I think it was like the GC or corporate secretary of, of GoTo who's like, we've been humbled by the response from institutional investors, <laughs> right? I, I remember reading that and I'm like, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing when you've been yeah. humbled by something? Like, does that mean that there's been so much response that, you know, you don't know what to do with it? Or is that, does that mean like, you know, these investors have been giving you a spanking? I don't know. But I think, I yeah, think, yeah, yeah. so... I don't think there's such a thing as a bad deal. I only think there's such a thing as a bad price, right? I learned this. Yeah. I learned this in my first ever M and A negotiation, and I think I carry this this truth to 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 true, right? Like, at the end of the day, do people want to invest in an Indonesian opportunity? Yes. Do people believe in the go-to story? I think the story is pretty good, right? You've got Gojek, you know, you've got Tokopedia. You're putting these things together. There's a tech piece. There's a financial piece. There's the Indonesian story. Yeah. Now, the question is, is the pricing right? And this is the part we don't know, right? Like, you know, they were saying um, 1.1B of a raise. Um, what was the price, uh, the, the the market cap? The valuation? Yeah. Uh, 30 billion. 30B, right? Yeah. Yeah. So 30B valuation. This is the part that's really tricky, right? Because if you look at their numbers, um, a little bit better than Grab, right? Yeah. Uh, a little bit better than Grab, but still, you know, 
negative PE stories have been doing terrible, right? Look at Shopee stock <laughs> and how it's getting a beating. Grab's getting a beating. No. Um, so I think, I think what will I think long term, great great plan. But I think the IPO itself might be a bit tricky. They'll probably go through a similar phase of what Grab is going through. Um, but I think, honestly, though, with all these IPOs in the last eighteen months, there's been very few success stories. You know, like yeah. um, I was looking at, I was looking at Pioneer yesterday. Pioneer's story was incredible. I remember getting into the IPO, thinking like, "Fuck yeah, this this stock is going to like perform." And then like yeah. eighteen months later, it's dipped to like fifty percent of IPO price. Yeah. And it's like, um, really, so, like, yes, yeah, same no, thing. Well, the U.S. also had a lot of disappointing IPOs at the end of last year, right? So twenty twenty one, they saw whole slew of IPOs that I, I don't know it, it almost feels like it's the result of too much financial engineering like all these people who got in early just need to get liquid right they need to raise their next funds and that's what's kind of pushing it macro environment people getting you know more more risk coming off I guess so um that's like it's an interesting perspective you know like the only counter now only the counter you know the devil's advocate to what you're saying is they just will not be able to pull it together, at least for for Grab. I don't know like how much of a machine e-commerce Tokopedia is in Indonesia. I don't know the company that well, but you know, Grab is like you know, they, what is the Garena to Shopee for Grab, right? So, are they going to burn through their balance sheet, or can they make something stick, or do they just have to accept a more reasonable valuation? And that's going to be the group on against. You got to think. Right? You got to think long term. You got to think long term. Like these stories are nice for right now, right? We can all piss on Grab and go to in a six month period. But ask me this: Do I want to be holding Grab and go to stock ten years from now? The answer for me is fuck yes, yeah. right? Right, like yes, they'll take a beating in this. Like, which stock? Remember when Tesla was taking a beating? Yeah. Right. Remember when Netflix was taking a beating? Right. Remember when 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 Google was taking a beating for like a, a couple of, of quarters? Like, all stocks are going to take a beating. You just got to hold through the bad quarters. And you know what? Like, yeah. if if I mean, if it was me, buy these. Like, okay, there's some stocks, and I I got to run soon, but like, I'm just like so quick cover on Chinese stocks. Chinese stocks. I don't know if you should touch them, right? Because there's there's like yeah. deep rooted fundamental regulations. They could get delisted. Yeah. Like so, definitely not a buy for me right now, right? I'm still yeah. holding a lot of them, but I'm yeah, holding with almost like, hopefully, you know, yeah. it'll go up, maybe you'll come back. Maybe I'll come back, but worst case, you know, I might lose yeah. the stuff, right? But yeah. these Indonesian stocks, the Southeast Asian growth story. Do you believe in the growth story? Yes. Do you believe there are other companies that are better? in Southeast Asia right now to buy that have a similar kind of growth trajectory or story? No, right? Yeah. Do you believe in the management teams of these companies? Are they attracting smart talent? Is the talent able to do really good stuff over time? I personally know a ton of people working at both these companies and they're incredible human beings who know what they're doing. They're smart, they're driven, they're ambitious. So like, look at it from a very fundamental perspective. Not, I'm, I'm not talking about fundamentals, like financial fundamentals. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like if you're holding something for the next 10, 20 years, right? I mean, we're in our 30s, right? Do I want to be holding Grab stock when I'm in my 50s? Yeah.